Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the gift of giving appeals, invitations to make decisions for Jesus. We pray for your Holy Spirit today. We want to thank you for how you blessed our class throughout this week. Thank you again for being with us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Elder DeBazier, if you would come again. I, when I thought of someone who would give a, a, a stirring appeal or a message about an appeal, I thought of you, and I'm glad you could join us. So we're going to give you five, ten minutes at the max, brother. All right, no problem at all. Let me, <laughs> Thank uh, you. Let me tell you uh, that when you asked me to come talk about appeals, it was a bit of a conviction because in all forthrightness, appeals is not something that I'm particularly good at. And I have learned to fake it, and I will tell you more about what not to do in my testimony than what to do, okay? Well, hopefully you'll learn what to do from what not to do, okay? Um, one of the things you'll notice, and if you've ever listened to any of the sermons I've preached or anything, I typically end with this question. Did our presentation tonight make sense? Was it clear? Now, why do I like that particular appeal? Well, yes, I want to know if they did understand the message, right? I have yet to have anyone say like, nope, <laughs> you know, object to it, right? It's easy. It's good for everybody. In the... And if you've done, if you've got a decent presentation of thought that leads this, leads to this, therefore this, right? And if you presented it without stammering or stuttering and you've had a good personable, you know, connection with the people, when you get to the end, it should make sense just like it did on paper, right? And so you, it's kind of a safe appeal, right? And it's good because you don't, I've always been intimidated. Oh, you don't want to make that appeal and no one comes down front or no one stands up and no one raised their hand. So this one sounds like, and you can do it quietly, friends tonight, did everything make sense? Was it clear from God's word? And you can give it more specific. Is it clear that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God? That from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is consistent about this fourth commandment obligation. Amen. And what will happen is, amen, amen, almost every hand will go up. And I'm tempted in that moment to say, amen, let's bow our heads for prayer. But let me tell you what's wrong with that appeal. It's not, it's not inherently bad, there's nothing immoral and ethical about it, right? But it's certainly, let's say, incomplete. And let me illustrate that from a story in my life. Um, it was the most, I, I can't say the most, but it was the most personal appeal I've ever made was to my wife. Okay. And when I, when I decided to, uh, propose to my wife, we, uh, I went to where she, she was in school at the time, uh, taking her master's degree and something. And so I, I came up there and it was Valentine's day. I mean, come on, you know, the jig is up. And we knew we were going to be getting married at some point, but I didn't tell her when or where. And I wanted to be, have a little mystery to it, right? And, and so while she went off to school, before she left, I said, look, you get dressed up tonight. You come back, get your homework done early because we're going out tonight. And we dressed up. And, and while she went to class, I went downtown and I prepared our evening date. I went to the most expensive restaurant I could find. Last time we've ever done that. Um, <laughs> I was so frustrated. We, we ordered this expensive hors d'oeuvre and it had all these fancy names. It was white beans on toast. And I was like, we eat that at home for 35 cents a piece. You know, it's like, this is crazy. Wait, whatever. But I got the table reserved. I made sure they could pronounce my last name. And, oh, good evening, Mr. DeVasia. Come on in. It's great. And we sat at the table. 
And she knew something was in the air, right? But I wanted to linger a little bit. And so when we were done with the meal, had a good conversation and everything, saying, all right, well, it's time to go. Let's go. And we got up and, and she was a little confused, expecting some sort of, you know, scene. Nothing happened. And, I, and as we were headed out to a car, I said, you know what? Before we head home, let's make one stop along the way. And she had to know. She had to know it was coming, right? And um, we get there. The weather is perfect, everything. I had the little speech prepared. I have a gift for her. And I got down on my knee and I, I read to her this inscription I put in this beautiful Bible. And, and, and literally, I was crying. It was powerful, right? She was ripe for the picking, right? And this is what I said. I said, Emily, I would be honored if you would be my wife. Awkward silence. For, and I was like, is this about to go south? Is about, oh my goodness, what, what's about to happen here? And she, was, she didn't run away or anything. She was just standing there sweetly, kind of like. And then she kind of mumbled some sort of like, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. And I got up and you know, we hugged and I was like, okay. And hand in hand, hand back to the t- car. But I was a little confused. Like, and so when we got in the car, I asked her, did, did, did that get weird? Were things just awkward there unnecessarily? And you know, as we were driving away, she told me this. She's like, well, you know, technically, you never actually asked me anything. You just declared something you would like. But you didn't invite me to... And I said, you're going to mess this up because of a technicality? You know what I meant, right? And I said, fine. And we're on the way home. And I said, fine, will you marry me? She said, yes. And so technically we got engaged on the ride home, right? It wasn't, right? But the issue was, we all knew what was coming. It was right at the right time, the right place, the whole mood was set. And I even stated some things that we all agreed with, but I never actually closed the deal with a specific call to action, a specific, will you respond to this? Yes or no, right? And in evangelism, I noticed that I tend to hedge my bets the same way. Does everyone understand? Is it clear? Do you see? Hands go up all over the place. Every non-Adventist in the room sees that the seventh day is the Sabbath. But you know that's not the appeal you need to make. Friends, how many here tonight, by God's grace, are going to keep the seventh day Sabbath this coming week? For some of you, it might be your very first seventh day Sabbath. But by the grace of God, you're going to commit tonight to being a Sabbath keeper according to the commandment of God. Think as many hands are going to go up that time? Everybody understood it, but not everybody's ready to commit to it, right? And that's the appeal. I find specific call to direct action is lacking in many of our appeals. But I think it's the very thing many people are waiting for. They're standing there like, like my wife, just waiting for, okay, ask me the... And we just let the pitch sail by. I think we have to have the courage, the holy boldness, say, friends, not only do you understand the message, are you ready to apply the message? How many tonight want to take their stand for that? You know what I'm saying? So I would encourage, as you make appeals, to yes, clear that everything was made sense and make sure you're on the same page so the convincing part is taken care of and the Holy Spirit will take care of the convicting part. They're going to see it applies to them. But the conversion only comes when they choose who they will serve. So you need to call for specific decisions. And even if no one comes down, 
your task is done. I don't know if that helps or not, but is that within our time frame? Fantastic. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank Thank you so much. much. Okay, well, thank you. I I will give you a good critique on that, by the way. Amen. Uh, Praise God. If you enjoyed that, will you please stand? (laughs) (laughs) Please stand. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, it's very true. Uh, He was... Uh, one thing about that story that I really appreciated uh, is he was very vulnerable, wasn't he? Did you catch that? I mean, that was very vulnerable. I mean, he opened himself up. I mean, you know stuff about him that very few people even know. I guarantee you, he hasn't, he hasn't voiced that very far, very wide. Have you? Okay. Well, okay, okay, well, okay, very good. But, you know, generally speaking... Uh, and I got engaged in a car too, <laughs> but I was I was cheaper. We just went out to the beach, and I just asked her. I did have a car. I said, "What if you didn't have a car?" Oh, I would have figured out a way. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a slight pause, but then Patsy said, "Yes," and then she started to cry, and then I thought, "Uh oh," <laughs> but it's lasted forty-five years as of last Sunday, so. Uh, since our wedding day. Okay, well, I think that it's important to realize, be specific. Uh, Eldershin this morning, he was very specific. He said this is not a general appeal. Maybe you were there. How many were there? Um, there's a number of times, I'll be very vulnerable. Uh, vulnerable. Um, there's a number of times during my life as a pastor that I have felt the need to go forward in an altar call. And I'm giving altar calls. I'm, I'm sharing with people. I'm asking people to raise their hand. I'm asking people to stand up. This morning I went forward because I thought I need more power in my life. And I, I want more of Jesus in my heart. And when he was specific about are you, are you struggling with something in your life? Yeah, I've, I've been struggling with, with some things. And uh, that's between me and God. If you're expecting you're going to get that, you have to pay a lot more for each class than what you did. <laughs> so we need to be vulnerable enough. But sometimes I will tell you the honest truth. I'm sure I am absolutely positive. I'm not the only pastor that's ever felt that way. But pastors tend to be immune to their own altar calls. And there are times that I have gone forward at the time of my altar call, and I haven't announced to everybody, hey, I'm going forward too. But I have stepped down off that platform, and I've joined the people. And I think that as we read the Spirit of Prophecy, and she talks about the outpouring of the Spirit will come through prayer and through confession and making things right with people. And we all go through times where if we're got level honest at some point or the other, that would be good for us and detoxing in our own personal life if we went forward. And I did this morning. And so, and, and Mervyn did too. Yeah, and, and I thought, you know, I need to do that for the sake of, you know, I want a closer relationship with God. Just because I'm an ordained minister for many years doesn't make me immune. 
And it doesn't mean that I, I don't have any struggles in life. And uh, so for what it's worth, department, being vulnerable in giving a call and being vulnerable in receiving a call is very important. Uh, and you have to have the Spirit of God touching your heart. I'm going to go right into another uh, altar call right now. Uh, friends, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I read a story recently that just intrigued me. It's about a boy who supposedly died in the year 2004. His name was Alex. He was a six-year-old. He had been involved in a horrific car accident that left him paralyzed and supposedly dead. Medically speaking, it was unlikely he would ever survive. I think Alex has gone to be with Jesus, a friend told the stricken dad. Two months later, Alex awoke from a coma with an incredible story to share of events at the accident scene and in the hospital while he was unconscious, of the angels that took him through the gates of heaven itself, of the unearthly music that sounded just terrible, he reported, the six-year-old boy, and most amazing of all, of meeting and talking to Jesus. It was written in a true story called The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, an ordinary boy's most extraordinary journey. After all, he had gone to heaven, or so they claimed. As you see heaven and earth through Alex's eyes, you'll come away with new insights on miracles, the book's uh, inside jacket says, in the power of a father's love. Now, John MacArthur, who's a quite famous evangelical evangelist in his own right, he said, for anyone who truly believes the biblical record, and that's what we want to believe tonight, friends. Amen? Amen. We want to believe the biblical record. How many hands would like to say that much as we, as we speak this evening? Pastor MacArthur said, it is impossible to resist the conclusion that these modern testimonies with their relentless self-focus and the relatively scant attention they pay to the glory of God are simply untrue. They're either figments of the human imagination, such as dreams, hallucinations, false memories, fantasies, and in the worst cases, deliberate lies, or else they are products of demonic deception. Are we tonight going to believe that the dead are alive based on a six-year-old boy's heartfelt story that was published by Zondervan, the boy who came back from heaven. Are we to believe a personal experience or will we go with what the Bible teaches? What will your choice be tonight? We've gone through the text. We've spent about 40, 45 minutes reviewing what the Bible says, what Jesus said, what Paul said, what all these gospel writers said about death and they compared it to what? They compared it to a sleep. It's biblical to believe what the Bible says. It said of the Berean believers, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. And they were willing to compare Scripture with Scripture as to whether these things were so that they were being taught. And so this evening, I want to also conclude this story Alex's story with his own personal testimony. 
And this is what he said. These are in his words sometime later. Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me, that it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Amen. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you can be forgiven. May you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible. Not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. He wrote those words when he was about 16, 10 years after the event that nearly took his life. So are we going to go by the testimony as written in the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven? Or would we be better off to go with the testimony of the Bible when it comes to what happens after a person dies? Now, usually I'm going to inter interject here and interrupt myself. But at this point, we usually have a card call for that. I don't usually call people forward on a message about death and resurrection. The card calls are important, but I want to say this about card calls. Personally, I believe that a card call loses some of its effectiveness if you use it every single night. I know there are some who I respect very much who use a card call every night. And if it works for them, that is great. I'll leave that between you and how the Lord leads you. But I have found in 20 years of active evangelism, actually I, I always had one or two meetings a year when I was a pastor. So added up 43 years. That sounds more impressive, right? 43 years of active evangelism, which is true, I have found that I don't need a card call every single night. Sometimes it's just a meditation prayer. Sometimes quietly as your heads are bowed, raise your hand. Sometimes they can stand. Sometimes I can in, 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 introduce a call into the heart of the message and they may not, you may not even know so much that it is an appeal. Those are rare. Like Elder Finley's a few nights ago. He, he was... I sent you there to hear this appeal, and then you come back and say, was that an appeal or not? But then you said it was embedded in his message all throughout the message. So people are thinking, a thinking appeal, if you please. But there's varieties of appeals. You don't want to give the same appeal. You don't want to give a card every single night. But I usually do for major distinctive beliefs. When it comes to the true church, they're apt to get an altar call. Sometimes when it comes to baptism, they're apt to get an altar call. But I keep the altar calls to the point where uh, I've gained their confidence and they know who I am and I have a relationship with them and hopefully I've been in, their, in many of their houses or, um, you know, I just want them to be as comfortable as they can with me before I'm the one calling them to come forward. Uh, I don't do that until they know who I am and they have a respect and credibility with me. Now, Billy Graham can do that the first night of a crusade. People know who he is and they respect him. 
And so he decided, I'm, going, I'm not going to waste a night. And every single night he called people forward. That was his means of appeals. But he actually, for four or five nights, when he would be there for an entire series, he just had people coming forward every night. But I've seen Billy give appeals in other contexts, like when he spoke at Harvard University and Yale University, or it may have been Princeton, where he gave an appeal, but he didn't ask those students who he did not know and who may not know him so well, he did not ask them to come forward in an altar call. So you have to use a good godly discretion. And Mark Finley said, it's very rare. In fact, he said he doesn't call people forward to the altar the first time they hear a distinctive message such as the Sabbath or the state of the dead. So I'll, I'll end that appeal on the state of the dead and I'll go through step by step each check mark for them. And I just wanted to emphasize that I do not give a card every night because I want to save the strength of that card um, and the substance of that card to, um, to the distinctive doctrines of the church. Okay? So I give one or two cards out a week, and that's all. And that's why. That makes a lot of sense, and that's what Mark Finley has taught. And I, when I read that, I thought, that makes a lot of sense. But I was right on the same page as him anyway. I, I was glad I was doing uh, what he thought was maybe a better practice. Now, something else. Appeals. This is not in your notes. I started thinking I gave you some appeals from the different Bible books, but I thought there's an appeal in the Bible, a couple appeals that were given to God. God has responded to appeals. Did you know that? We usually, we're always thinking, God is giving the appeal, and we are to respond to God's appeal. But in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, in two different instances, two different stories, Moses is appealing to God. Now, I do believe that it was the Holy Spirit that was speaking to Moses. He already had the heart of Jesus to appeal to God the way he did. But he appealed to God. And he said, Lord, this people have sinned a great sin against you. And in chapter 32, verse 32, the second of those appeals, he said, now, if you will forgive them. But he doesn't quite finish his thought. He probably was crying. He said, but if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of your book, that you have written. He had such a love for people that he could not bear as their leader to be in the kingdom with God without his people. He was ready to be cast out with them. And God heard his prayers. And it says in the record of Exodus chapter 32, God changed his mind. It's speaking in human language, you understand. I believe that God was very pleased with Moses. God had offered, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And instead of Moses picking that up, and God could have done that, Moses said, no, these are your people. Lord, what will, what will the nation say when they, when they remember how you brought them out of Egypt and how they walked through the Nile, and now they're going to hear that you've destroyed them? May that never be. 
He was bold in, in talking with God. And last night, and I was going to research this, it's in testimonies, not testimonies to ministers, but special testimonies to pastors. I think that is the name of the leaflet. Special Testimonies to Pastors by Ellen White. She says something like this, that the Lord is waiting for us to demand and to receive the Holy Spirit. Now that is a paraphrase. But God is asking us to ask big things. Amen? Okay, so that was a type of an appeal. And here's another type of an appeal, and this is not in your notes either. You're getting extra credit for coming on Friday. Appeals by way of object lessons. Now, I turned on the lights today. Isn't that a little doll up there? Is this, how's that work? Oh, that's better, isn't it? A little easier on the eyes. Appeals by way of object lessons. Uh, this is embedded in the, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and Jesus talks about uh, the lilies of the field, how they sow not, neither do they uh, in the sparrows. You know, they're, and God takes care of all of them. Here's another appeal by Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. From the book of Mark, chapter 14, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is that a, a very effective appeal? He slept anyway. He slept anyway, but was the appeal, was it because the appeal was not good? Did Jesus need to come to an appeals class like this? No, it's, it's a very heart-wrenching appeal, is it not? The, the stupor that was over uh, Peter and the disciples must have been very great indeed for him not to respond to that very effective appeal of our Lord. And then in Luke 22, verses 40 and 46, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now that just wasn't for the disciples. It wasn't just good for the disciples. I thought to myself, if there was a million dollar line that I could share with you today about appeals, what would Jesus say to us? I believe that his appeal to us today would be pray that you may not enter into temptation. And wouldn't that keep us? If we were to answer that appeal affirmatively, wouldn't that keep us from entering into temptation many times? I think it would. He may say, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. Isn't that an everyday decision we make? Yes. Are we taking our devotional time? I'll share my secret for devotions. I know that... Um, Elder Shin, uh, or Dr. Shin, around the corner from us, the hour before us. Maybe some of you were in his class. I wish I could have been there. I'm not sure what he said. But I, I, I think that more often it would be good for us to share what, what's working for us. And you might say, okay, I'm going to try that. 
When I became a Seventh-day Adventist, one of the first things I did to keep my devotional life going, even at 12 years of age, was to study my Sabbath school lesson each and every day. Along the way, I lost that experience. Uh, they changed the junior guide <laughs> and where they used to have just about a page a day for your Sabbath school study back in those days. Uh, they, they started congealing it into or condensing it into one or two pages for the whole week. And I, I lost interest. And so uh, I began uh, uh, to waver in my commitment to that. When I became a pastor, I was pastoring four churches, then three churches, then two churches. So very rarely did I ever go to Sabbath school. And so even though I did maintain a regular devotional life, I'll tell you the God honest truth, sometimes I'd skip a day here or there. And the Lord, a number of years ago now, appealed to my heart, and he gave me the picture of that junior boy who used to study his lesson every day. And so for the last number of years, quite a few years, I have been studying my Sabbath school lesson each and every day. I just make it, I've made that commitment to God. And I, I, I not only, what, I'm, what I do when I study it is I open up my Bible to every single verse that week. And I write out the answer to every single question in my quarterly. And what that does is it keeps me regular. And for you, there might be something else that keeps you regular, but the Lord brought me back to my first love experience for my Sabbath school lesson. I should have said that when Elder DeVazier was here. I mean, he's the Sabbath school director of this conference. I wrote him about it, though. So whatever works for you, stay close to God. Have a devotional life. And from there, I branch out to reading through my Bible, underlining, putting texts together, spirit of prophecy, but this is not for sermon preparation, but the Holy Spirit prepares my heart to preach good sermons because I've had a devotional experience with Jesus every day. And that's very important to me. And I use the Sabbath school lesson uh, to, and I don't study through it for the, through the whole week in a hurry. I go through section by section. Sometimes it's half a section a day because I get lost in the text. Sometimes I study more than one lesson in a day, but I study that lesson every day. And it's unusual not to, but even if I miss a day, I don't miss my devotions or my prayer time. And since I'm getting older, uh, the Lord has made it so I don't sleep so well at night. I mean, he doesn't make it that way, I guess. But I don't know. Maybe it's a blessing getting older. And so I have a lot of prayer time. Uh, I'll be up in the middle of the night and I'll be praying. I love to do that at night. And the Lord gives me ideas at night. It's very, very beautiful. This is from yesterday now. Uh, this is from study guide number five. Um, when to make appeals and where appeals appealed. I hope you've kept the folder we gave you earlier this week. Uh, it's on the second page, I believe. And you were asking me about it yesterday. If you haven't invited, you haven't preached. If you haven't persuaded, you haven't preached. 
If you haven't begged, you haven't preached. That's being vulnerable. Yeah. You may have lectured, led an inductive Bible study, or presented an insightful exposition, but to be a preacher is to be a pleader, a persuader, a beggar. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 comes to mind. Uh, we're ambassadors for Christ, and we, in, on behalf of Christ, we're pleading with you, we're begging. Now you accept him. You know, that, that's what Paul is saying there in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, or 18 through 20. So if you haven't invited, you haven't preached. If you haven't persuaded, you haven't preached. If you haven't begged, you haven't preached. That would be yesterday. It, it, would, it would have been blanks to fill in from yesterday, number five. This is an interesting story. From the book of John, chapter 21. This isn't in your notes either. You're going to say, wow, this is... But just say we're putting six lectures into five, or seven lectures into six. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. What is one reason they knew it was the Lord? Just from that verse alone, I gave you a hint. I underlined the word come. That's a prime example of an appeal word. Come, follow me, repent, and be baptized. There's always an invitation. Come is maybe the biggest of all words when it comes to making an effective appeal. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word. And the king, King Agrippa, said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Agrippa was feeling persuaded. He was feeling influenced. He was feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. But unfortunately, he did not respond. But Paul did everything he could for that man, and his conscience is clear. And so, give appeals. You never know but what someone needs at that day. It might be a preacher. Amen. Could be. We need a deeper experience. Amen. And that... I think the Spirit of God works in a very special way at camp meeting. There's more people praying in a smaller, more congested area here than there will be praying Adventists at any other time this year. The angels of God are here. The Holy Spirit is here. And you feel God tugging at your heart. Because there's a lot of people praying. A lot of people have been praying for this meeting. But there's something to that. They knew it was the Lord. They heard Him say, come. And I think that, that moved upon their hearts. They recognized the appeal in the Word, but they recognized the appeal in how He said, come. No one else could say the word, come, like Jesus did.
I'm glad I go to camp meeting because I, I picked up something yesterday morning from uh, my good friend David Shin, and this is what, it, uh, what he brought out from Review and Herald, November 2, 1886. So if you wanted to get that and you didn't, you can get it here. If the voice of Jesus is not heeded at once, if be, it becomes, excuse, let's see, did I type that wrong? If the voice of Jesus is not heeded at once, oh, okay, I didn't type that right. I didn't catch that. It becomes confused in the mind with a multitude of other voices the world's care and business engross the attention and conviction dies away. This is continuing the thought. The heart becomes less impressible and lapses into perilous unconsciousness of the shortness of time and of the great eternity beyond. If the voice of Jesus is not heeded at once, it becomes confused in the mind with a multitude of other voices. The world's care and business engross the attention and conviction dies away. The heart becomes less impressible and lapses into perilous unconsciousness of the shortness of time and of the great eternity beyond. Winston Churchill said, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to be able to persuade my wife to marry me sort of follows along the theme of the, one of the themes of the day, uh, one of the uh, minor themes of the day at least. <laughs> Do you remember? So he didn't claim maybe that the separation of Europe is a brilliant achievement. I think most feel he was a brilliant leader, but yes, uh, isn't it amazing, though, as famous as he was, he says, it was my ability to persuade my wife to marry me. And when I go back and, you know, really I believe the Lord, uh, the Spirit of God was, must have been working in Patsy's heart to, for her to be able to say yes to me. So love, we give appeals because we love. Pastors give appeals because they love. Appeals are very emotional and never apologize for an emotional appeal. It's by the very, by, just because it is an, an appeal, it will be emotional. And emotional appeals work. This is again from even the world will agree emotion works. Uh, a lot of what business people have discovered is emotion works. They, you know, scientists say, well, the the brain is just carrying along and basically uh, it's 95% uh, of the time in a non-thinking state. And uh, so people are more susceptible to emotional appeals because their brains are in idle and subliminal state most of the time. And then they said, this business, uh, business page said, we need to realize the value of reaching our audience on the emotional level as well as by logic and reasoning. So you need logic, you need reasoning. Appeals without logic and reasoning don't make much sense. But it doesn't make much sense either to just have logic and reasoning without an appeal. And for most of us, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a lot of logic, we have a lot of reasoning, 
we call people to think. These kids aren't thinking, but they're having a great time. They're all emotional out there, you know, but they're, they're, not, they're just thinking about swatting each other with those styrofoam. <laughs> but, but isn't that great about a kid? Amen? They Be like little children, you know, because they don't have a worry in the world, and they trust, they trust so well, and oh, wow, I love my kids and my grandkids. But as Seventh-day Adventists, we tend to give the logic and the reasoning without an appeal. And I'm just saying, let's give more appeals. Let's give some kind of an appeal all, all the time because, I mean, we've got a message here. And it makes sense. And tie together, get, their, get them relaxed with, with a wonderful story at the beginning and give a heart appeal at the end. And you can have an, an embedded appeal in the middle somewhere. But have some windows. Open up the windows a little bit. Let the fresh air in. You know, have a moment where you, where you stand by in your sermon and, hey, you see those kids out there? You know, people have to relax a little bit as you're giving them. Think of how heavy it sometimes can be to hear the Seventh-day Adventist message without having any light shed on it by an appeal. Study how Jesus preached. Study how these Bible, how the Bible is written. I, I was struggling with a Bible chapter, I was numbers something or other here recently, and it's all about uh, here's the tribe of Reuben, and here's the sons of Reuben, and they begat so-and-so, and so-and-so, and these are all the warriors 20 years and older. There were so many thousands of them in the tribe of Reuben. Then you go to the next tribe. It might be the tribe of, I don't know, not Levi, but Reuben, and then oh, Simeon. And it goes through the same words, the same numbers. And I think God is very specific. He wants my name written there. Amen? He, he knows everybody by name, and he wants us to know that, but I struggle reading through hundreds of names in a chapter of people. I don't even know how to pronounce their names. But God has a count, and he wants you to be among those faithful, their name written in the book of life. Amen? By the way, since I mentioned that, have you seen the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C.? I haven't seen it yet. My daughter, Heidi, just moved over to uh, Haymarket, and they drove into D.C. a couple weeks ago. And she said the most profound place to be in Washington, D.C., is that Vietnam War Memorial. She said people stand there in silence. And loved ones are finding their, their loved one's name, their dad, their grandfather. And there's flowers that people put there. And she said, it is a very sacred place in Washington, and all it is. You can see your reflection in the, I believe it's in the granite, the dark granite. All it is, is a bunch of names. But people love to find, and it's a heart-wrenching experience if they've lost a loved one, the 58,000 or so that gave their life for their country. Their names are etched in stone. And she said, you have to be there to experience it. 
Don't they have a guard there on duty, like twenty four seven? No. I I don't I don't no. know. Okay. I was there at eleven thirty at night a year ago, and just I was there. With yeah. Did you find it that way? It's, it's just a lot of names. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just trying to by saying just a bunch of names bring out a point. When you read the Bible passage in the Book of Numbers, I think it's chapter 24, chapter 26, something like that. Or if you go into Chronicles and you read those bunch of names, just a bunch of names, they're not just a bunch of names to God. He feels very, very much personal about each and every name on that list. He feels very personal about your name. And if you could put your name in, in the place of some of these genealogies or your name there, you'd feel a lot different about it, right? And like I said yesterday in my, my experience when I was eight years of age, someone asked me, what does God call you? You know, I've been called Danny, Dan, Daniel. And the one time I heard... God speak to me when I was eight years old. I, I heard his voice. And I know, it, well, I was impressed at that very moment, I, it was the voice of Jesus. How do you know that, Dan? I just know. And I know it saved my mother's life that day. But he called me Daniel. He calls us by name. And he wants to uh, have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Keep your goal in mind. It's not merely to inform about something. Be transformational. Don't just complain about something. Don't make the basis of your sermon complaining about the Catholics. Bring out the truth about all that, but bring it out in a Christ-centered way. Amen? Be a living change agent. Your source of credibility is the Bible. So keep the Bible as your source of credibility. I'm going to skip on, uh, but... Your objective is to persuade your audience. Let them know you care about them. Talk to your audience, not at your audience. Eye contact. Let them feel as though you are their friend and that you care about them. And build credibility early. And you do that by, uh, by heart stories, stories that reach the heart. In my reading and preparation for this over and over again, I've read, put your best... Uh, best stuff first so that you have a credibility thereafter. People will buy into you. This is from Desire of Ages 254 and 255. Jesus watched with deep earnestness the changing countenances of his hearers. The faces that express interest and pleasure gave him great satisfaction. When his eye swept over the throng of listeners and he recognized among, among them the faces he had seen before, his countenance lighted up with joy. He saw in them hopeful subjects for his kingdom. So Jesus would scan the audience, and he was one who knew that body language says something. 55% of what people receive is from body language, your body language, my body language. And so I haven't mastered it, but... You don't, you don't stand and talk to your audience with arms folded or like this or point your foot, you know. There are, there's keys to body language in the tone of your voice, 38%. 7% of the information we receive is from what is said.
Mm. But what I get from this, 55 and 38, if you've got good body language and the tone of your voice is inviting and not condemnatory, then you have a full package. Everything you say is going to carry a lot of weight because what you say is backed up by your body language and by your tone of voice. And a lot of the reason people buy into that 7% of what you say, what they remember, is that you smiled, that you were open, that you were inviting, and your language was such to be so, even the tone of what you said. So what you say is vitally important, but how you say it, the body language, the medium by which it comes and, and reaches everybody is just as important. So study body language, and I'm not going to get into it here. We run out of time, but it's been suggested body language may account for between 50 and 70% of all communication. And so if someone's eyes dilate, it might mean a desire. If they're blinking back and forth, it might mean, hey, they're under distress, they're, they're uncomfortable. Uh, learn to understand uh, if someone's biting their lip, uh, they may be worried, they may be anxious, they're under stress. Uh, tightening the lips might be an indicator of distaste, disapproval, or distrust. Crossed arms, defensive, self-protective, they're closed off. This is what you'll notice as you're speaking. Hands on the hips, they're ready, they're in control, and maybe a sign of aggressiveness. A closed posture, they, it may indicate hostility, unfriendliness, anxiety. Open posture indicates friendliness, openness, and willingness. Uh, palms on the chest, when a person uses open palms that occasionally touch their chest, they're signaling honesty. Uh, palms up, open hands, defenses down, and open heart. Open arms, stay open in your presentation. Folded arms, a defense mechanism that shows the person is not open to what is being said or done. May indicate rejection. Physically cold, they're stubborn in their outlook. Hands closed, a closed heart. So, be aware. They've uh, combined some different attitudes here. Uh, interested, smile. Defensive, hands, they're ready to uh, stand their ground, you know. Uh, someone may be insecure. They're not looking straight at you. It's sort of like the side of you. You're just looking like that. Hey, Wes, what do you think? <laughs> so they're not too open. Impatient to leave. It does, doesn't, that, oops, doesn't that guy right there look like he's about, oh, yeah, right. I've heard this before. I'm about ready to get out of here. Doesn't that look like that? They're, so, uh, not open to communicating. She's all closed off. Might be lying. Who knows? So it doesn't mean they're always lying if they're like that, you know? But just study it out. I've, I give, I, I've given you in the handout for today a number of different places where you can go to find out more. And I'll let you do that. Avoid having your hands in your pockets when you're up front.
and speaking. And that is very that's very often done. It's not a good. It's not a good. It's not a good trait. You can buy this. Uh, you can get this download free from i iMotions.com. Facial expression analysis. Uh, insecure. You know, confident. Uh, there's so much that we can learn. Have someone videotape you. And boy, it's hard to look at yourself, but you know, check it out. Effective communication, 20% what you know and 80% how you feel about what you know. When you're uncertain or intimidated, nervous or afraid, we instinctively close down our bodies. It's just, you'll, you'll find yourself doing that and you don't even realize it. Crossed arms and legs, head bent, toes pointed inwardly, this will give the impression that you are uncertain at the least or dishonest at the worst. By constantly opening your body, arms out, palms open, head up, you will appear at ease and honest. People are going to see that before they hear what you have to say. So again, the thought from Desire of Ages, it makes more sense when you consider uh, all of these things. Uh, here's some body language. What do you think the Prime Minister of Canada is thinking? Is he, uh, is he open to being friends with our president, at least? Huh? Very skeptical. He's not so sure about that. In politics, it's that way. And it's also that way in politics. Uh, in, in politics, body language is important. And when it comes to um, being... Up front, as a presenter for Jesus, it's even more important. I'm going to close off with a word of prayer. I do have a short four-minute video, if you want to hear it, of President Kennedy speaking in Berlin in 1963. He was a very effective communicator, and uh, it, this four-minute video sort of draws you right in and it helps you, you can see the response in the million and a half people that were there. Whatever you think of uh, uh, our president, our former president, as far as political persuasion or uh, the kind of person he might have been, you have to admit, especially if you can remember his presidency, that he knew how to communicate. And he was very open and the smile and it comes across. Yeah, this is the speech. It's about four and a half minutes. And, and it will help you see a person that knew how to communicate. He wasn't a preacher, but the, the passion is there. So we'll stop there. We're going to let you pick up the materials you would like. If you'd like to stay by after people picked up what they have, I'll be happy to stay by. We can watch this short video together. And any questions you may have, I want to thank you for being here. Some of you, six days out of six, five out of six, uh, four out of six. If, if, if today was the only day, I want to thank you for coming. I know you could do a lot of things at camp meeting. Let's pop our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to study about 
the importance of appeals. Jesus gave great appeals. The cross is the greatest appeal of all time. But yet, even beyond that, Seventh-day Adventists know and believe what your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is doing for us now. Lord, His hands are open. He has an open body language before you. His hands are up. His palms are up. Our names are written on those palms. Our names are written on His heart. And Father in heaven, He loves you and He loves us. He's the great mediator between God and man. As our heads are bowed today, as our eyes are closed, please make us people who are appealing for Jesus. If that's the prayer of your heart, please raise your hand with me. I want to thank you, Lord, for the decisions that are being made today. We want to have hands up. We want to have hearts up to you. And thank you that just now Jesus is right there in your presence, Father. And I pray that it will be our joy to be filled with your Holy Spirit that we might be able to share in a most effective manner the love of Jesus and the truth as it is in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.